When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everybody and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast brought to you by the Manchester Evening News uh, on this fine Easter Monday. My name is Dan Murphy and joining me today is a couple of good eggs in one, Mr Samuel Luckhurst. Samuel, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I've also just polished off a bag of mini eggs, so uh, the, the, the timing of your, your pun there was, was exceptional. I, I must, and, and I've must got more you. coming, I've got more coming. <laughs> I've literally just written a little script, but before we get to that, Tyrone, how are you as well? Very good, Dan. Very good. Thank you. In a chocolate coma, but feeling a little bit brighter for that fine pun in the intro. Oh, well, let's hop to um, what we're really here for. It's on fire. uh, You know, in the spirit of Easter, lads, United (laughs) resurrected their top four hopes on Saturday um, with a 3-2 victory over Norwich City. um, There's a lot to talk about, actually, this weekend, because for a game against the Rock Bottom team, you know, even Rock's won. You know, Jesus stone in front of a cave. I'm just full of them, not even meaning to make them. And they're just they're just coming out with reckless abandon. But even though, you know, team at the bottom of the table, Samuel, and you know, even though United did get a win, which may well just kind of turn the fortunes around for the rest of the season, they made it a lot harder than it needs to be. Yeah, and it, it wasn't even the, the the big story of the day there. There were probably two or three other stories that yeah. um overshadowed that, but it was a very gung-ho lineup that, that Rangnick went with and immediately you sense that there might be an issue there because although Paul Pogba doesn't seem to know his best role for United going off his quotes last month, he's most definitely not a defensive midfielder. And for a good I don't know, 35, 40 minutes, it, it seemed okay because they were they were winning, uh, they, they were 2-0 up. And then when Norwich did score, it obviously changed the complexion of the game and Norwich got that equaliser and, and at 2-2 they, they were the better side. You, you could see it coming in that with the transitions, even before United actually went 1-0 up, there was a very good chance for Pookie with the 1-1 with De Gea, which, um, which he didn't take. It was a decent stop from De Gea. It wasn't the best of strikes from, from Pookie. Uh, but that was just an early example of Norwich being able to, on the transitions, just get past United very easily. And you look back at the, the equalising goal, and it goes from back to front. I think there's a ball play that, that Cruel gathers and literally Norwich just work it from their own uh, penalty area to the opposite penalty area with a minimum of fuss. And that wasn't all Pogba's fault, but the fact that they didn't have a proper midfielder, a defensive midfielder in there was was a big problem. Uh, I suspect that the Manu Matic didn't start because of Anfield, um, knowing that given what certainly what Rangnick said today, McTominay and Fred, it looks like neither of them are going to be playing in that so Matic was probably prioritised for a game three days later. But when you've got someone like Bruno Fernandes ahead of you, you need someone to keep vigil because Fernandes is as likely to hit uh, an, op- an, op- an opposition player as he is to hit his own teammate. The way it's going at the moment, he's probably more of a 12th man for the opponents. And 
Norwich just made hay, really, and Rangnick was very scathing of it after saying about lack of physicality at United, how transitions are easily, um, how easily, easily they happen against United. And so, although they won, um, there was there was there was a lot of um, there were a lot of issues to, to take away from it. Um, and, and of course, I'm sure we'll get onto Pogba in a moment. But you know, the, the amount of times that Ronaldo is apparently a problem, but I think he scored ten winners now this season for United. Almost half his goals have been winners for them. It's two hat tricks in, in the last two games they've won from him. I think there are some clowns out there who've um, introduced a new uh, phrase to the football lexicon, which is uh, negative net or net negative, whichever way around, it's just absolute jargon. And apparently it's, you've got numbers, but you're a negative impact on the team. You think of where United would be without Ronaldo this season, it's pretty frightening. They they would be mid-table, the amount of times that he's actually salvaged situations for them. So um, I've I've got no time for these pseudo-intellectuals who probably think that goals were in games as well and want to talk about XG and all that nonsense. So uh, we, we shan't dwell on them much longer. But yes, it was it was a needlessly um, gritty win against, yeah, I mean, a bunch of competition wins from the championship. Let's face it, Norwich are going to go back down. And unfortunately, they'll probably come back straight up as well, uh, a little bit like Fulham. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've summed it up very, very concisely there. But Ty... I thought what was kind of the most jarring about it is like the first 40 minutes or so, United, other than that pooky chance um, in the opening few minutes, I thought United had actually played the best kind of football I'd seen them play for a number of weeks. They were attacking, maybe helped by the absolute um, complete lack of midfield in the formation and just loading it with attackers. But I thought that United actually knocking it about quite nicely. The first two goals um, came about through mistakes or a corner, but the, the the, the play to build up to those chances beforehand was quite nice. I thought Sancho, Lingard, Pogba at times and Ronaldo were all linking up really nicely and Langer, I thought, had his strongest half um, from the start of a match as well. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it, it all got thrown away because they're kind of the same old defensive frailties um, added to the fact that there was no holding midfielder, um, which, you know, they're bad at defending at the best of times, let alone when they're completely exposed like that. But they just kind of reared their ugly heads once again and as Samuel alluded to there they, they relied on Ronaldo to save them once more yeah I mean they were always going to have spells where they were playing nice football because they had six nice creative fluent attacking players on the pitch didn't they but that that's part of the problem um, I mean I think it was an example of the, the treatment of Lingard this year is absolutely bizarre um, I thought it was unfortunate to go off he looked you know, he looked inventive. I think he's an ideal link player between midfield and attacking in that sort of system. I think he's been really unfortunate not to play more. But when it clicks with six players like that, it's always going to look good in spells. But it doesn't click often enough and it's completely unsustainable. And I think, like Samuel said, there'd been a warning shot even before United took the lead. And it was... It, for a team like Norwich to find it so easy to play through the lines at Old Trafford, to create chances at Old Trafford, to run at the back four... It is hugely concerning. And I mean, I know this is going to annoy people who are very anti, anti sort of stats and, and XG. And obviously XG is fundamentally irrelevant when it comes to the score. And United won the game because of the brilliance of Ronaldo. But Norwich, on XG, Norwich had more expected goals than United in that game, which if it tells you anything, tells you they created better chances. And anyone watching that game would agree they did create better chances than United. And they looked 
they looked a more creative side than United when they got going. And that's got to be a concern for a team that are the worst in the Premier League and are going down and are simply not very good at this level. And it just, you know, there, there are there are concerns there. I thought defensively they were a mess, a complete mess. Um, the fullback's an issue. I mean, Tellez is, uh, I don't know how he plays left back for any team in the world. His positional sense is uh, under 12s level. He has not got a clue where to be on the pitch. Can you remember how? Can you remember how overhyped he was by online fans as yeah. well? Who, who, well, you'd yeah. like to think they watched Portuguese football, but even if they did, what difference does getting stats in numbers in Portugal mean? Fernandes is probably the only exception, but it is I mean, it's staggering that United even signed him. And then they agreed. Think, yeah. We oh we watched him when he was at Galatasaray in 2014 as if we were supposed to be impressed by this. Well, we certainly weren't impressed by it. And then it turned out that one of the former managers never even heard of him went during all the um, scouting sessions at a time where they were actively looking for a left back as well. So yeah, yeah, he just can't he can't defend, can he? I mean, he was he he ran away from Kieran Dow for that equaliser, and I know they were short in the centre, but. Dow was nearest to goal. Just watch your man. And he's 10 yards away from him. Rashika's chance. I mean, where he was going for Rashika's chance and where he was. He just, he does not know where to be on the pitch. It's incredible. Um, so, yeah, fundamentally, I think, you know, it, it was a vital three points. It was a needed three points. But there wasn't much in the performance that makes you think, if they play like that, they'll get a result at Anfield. I mean, if they play like that, they'll get smashed at Anfield. So, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't anything you look at that think that gives you hope for the rest of the season beyond the fact that Ronaldo was hitting form, they got the three points and obviously other results went their way. It's a, it's a motivational boost rather than looking at it thinking they've, they've struck upon something there, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think on a day when we had a bit less to talk about, we could maybe talk about the Lingard not getting as much playing time. And I think a player who came on, who I think is mis, uh, mistreatment this season has been abysmal, has been Juan Mata, because I think came on um, in this game and I want to say the Atletico Madrid game, and in both matches, he looked kind of more creative and was doing some really nice passes, a lot more than Fernandez has been doing in recent weeks in, you know, 10 minutes or five minutes each of there. So the fact that he's in his last campaigns had such little playing time, I think, has been quite um, quite an oversight. But as I say, there's a lot to talk about because, Samuel, despite the uh, despite the win and, you know, the Ronaldo hat-trick and the celebrations, thankfully, at the end of the game, there was kind of a lot of stories, as you allude to, in this start. Bigger stories, kind of off the pitch. The first and probably the most significant of which was um, the United fans' glazer protest. You were there in amongst it before um, the match and had to rush back to your seat for kickoff. Um, yeah, why, don't you, why don't you tell us through what your experience was of witnessing that and if what, if any, effect it will have kind of going forward on on today, a year, um, a year since the Super League, which obviously sparked the. The big protests um, just over a year, just under a year ago kind of takes place. Sure, uh, just off the team news drops, a, f- a few of us went out there just to gauge what what, what it was like, and fortunately, it was quite well timed. That when I got to the top of um, some at Busby Way, they were just coming around the corner, for protesters. So we were able to kind of like just follow what was going on. It was just essentially this reasonably well choreographed march, but it was quite a meagre number at that point. And they went through the Munich Tunnel out the other end of it. Um, walking through the Munich Tunnel, the shutters had come down on the entrance to the director's box, the entrance to the media entrance, and also um, the entrances for some of the hospitality suites as well. And then the fans just 
exited out the other side of the tunnel and we just were milling around uh, quite underwhelmed by it at that point, even though it was starting to grow numbers just by virtue of them being uh, with with other United supporters at the stadium. And we couldn't get back into the media centre, but then the fans came back from uh, the opposite end that they'd entered. And for a good half hour, 40 minutes, maybe, maybe three quarters of an hour, they, they occupied the tunnel and there was a chant of Love United, stay outside. I think if, if a lot of people had stayed outside and it was visible that the stadium was a lot sparser than usual, then you could have certainly considered that a victory for the protesters. But I do suspect a lot of the people who were protesting were, were ticketless and there's no issue with that whatsoever. It wasn't like if you've got a ticket, you you, you have to protest. You, you That's the only way you're, you're getting in or anything like that. Everyone was welcome to, to join in. It was a peaceful protest as well, as far as I could see. That there were there was a big police presence, and you know the, the high vis um, presence probably matched the number of uh, green and gold scarves and green and gold regalia that was worn by United supporters. And yeah, they were as I said, they were just going through their repertoire of anti-glazer chants in the tunnel. Um, I, I do know that some did eventually go back inside the stadium, but in the 17th minute where, I mean, I think the, the gist of it was to stay outside for the first 17 minutes to mark 17 years of the Glazers' ownership. Uh, it, it wasn't particularly apparent on that 17-minute mark that, oh, the stadium was suddenly filling up or loads of people were streaming in through the um, through each block to go to their seat. Um, I, I saw a couple, in fact, in front of the press box who came in before the 17-minute mark, and I think they were pretty much complaining that they couldn't get in for, for kickoff because of the protests that were going on outside. Um, so in the end, it, it was neither. I wouldn't say it was like it was. It was neither a success nor a failure. Um, I, I don't think that that protest is ever going to unnerve the, the Glazer family, especially when tens of thousands are are clicking through the turnstiles. The the attendance on Saturday was. I think just over seventy three thousand. So that that is that would indicate that there were around three thousand vacant seats because it's a seventy six thousand capacity at Old Trafford. But they're still raking in, you know, they're, they're still raking in people's uh, people's cash. And I still go back to the Crystal Palace game in twenty sixteen, that midweek match where fans voted with their feet and pretty much to say if you don't sack Louis Van Gaal, I'm I'm not renewing my season ticket and. The, the side of the stadium that night was, you know, it was, it was quite, you know, it was quite shocking actually to see it as sparsely populated as it was, even though it was a rearranged game. So, you know, you know hats off to the United supporters who, who who are investing their time in in protesting and and what have you, and it, it was peaceful. Uh, but I, you know, I, I suppose you know, a colleague said that the best form of protests are. Are disruptive protests, and of course, it was very much disruptive when it around that Liverpool game last season when they got it postponed. But these supporters had no intention of, of postponing the game. They they stressed it was peaceful, and it will be interesting to see whether they can sustain momentum because they, they were due to United were due not to have a home game for more than two weeks. But the Chelsea game has been brought forward to to next Thursday. So whether they decide to go again with uh, a sequel to Saturday's protest remains to be, as I said, it remains to be seen. But in the end, there was probably a larger number of protesters there than, than I expected. 
I think Ty, even during the game, the the momentum, as Samuel mentioned, they did carry on throughout the match. I think after every United goal, the chorus of anti-Glazer chants began, and you could hear them throughout the match. Even I thought before the protesters came in. So even if perhaps maybe some fans didn't stay outside, they certainly I think the sentiment certainly kind of is present with a lot more fans that are in the stadium as well. But what what in your opinion, Ty? Do you think United fans can do more than this? Like as Samuel said, there protests like this probably isn't going to until it affects kind of the ownership's um, bottom lines, it's hard to see them having much impact despite the admirable, um, you know, effort and time and the mm. the cause, which I think any football fan, no matter where, you know, no matter what your team you support, if you're, if you're a support arrival of United, I do think it's a cause that anyone can get behind because I think we'll soon see um, with another team in the Premier League in Burnley who also had a leverage buyout similar to United, I think we'll see the effects of what those sort of purchases can have should they go down at the end of the season because it's not looking good for them at all. No, it's not. Um, but obviously Burnley are going to be in trouble because they're going to get relegated. As bad as United have been, they're not going to get relegated. Um, they're just going to end up playing in the Europa League or the Europa Conference League. And, you know, like someone said, the, the, the Glazers aren't going to take notice unless it hurts their bottom line. It's difficult to think of a way that hurts the bottom line. Boycotts, I think, are unrealistic because... If you boycott games, this is Manchester United. Just some other fans will turn up and it'd be better for the Glazers because the fans that replace the boycotters will be day trippers who will go in the mega store, buy two shirts and a dressing gown or whatever, spend 200 quid in the mega store, spend 20 quid at half time and they'll be they'll be better off. So I don't think boycotts are going to work. And I think, you know, I've mentioned this on the last three podcasts now. The issue is keeping the momentum going We've seen that before, really, at the, at the start, um, when the Glazers took over the club, then with the green and gold. And there's there's not going to be a quick fix for this. The the kind of protests that get a lot of media attention at clubs are clubs that are in dire financial straits. You go back to the protests around Liverpool. I mean, they were in a bad way financially. United aren't that, and the Glazer ownership isn't that. You know, so it's it's difficult to get the momentum. And it's, it's pretty clear that there is not, you know, it's almost a civil war amongst the fan base at times. There is not, there isn't a unity at all amongst the fans for how a how to go about it, and b that it's also a worthy cause because there's a lot of fans who go every week, certainly to home games, who don't want to protest and haven't got any intention of protest, and are they might not deep down they might not agree with the Glazers, and they almost certainly don't agree with the Glazers, and be able to find a fan in that stadium that does. But while the money's being spent, and they're spending 120 million last summer. They're going to get a new manager this summer. You know, they'd rather just sit on their hands and, and watch the football than complain or, or, you know, protest when it's on-pitch failings that are probably the biggest issue at the moment. So I think there's, you know, I think it's hard to get that unity amongst the fan base of what needs to happen because it's clear there's a large element that don't want to protest, don't see the need to protest. And like we say, there's not going to be a quick winner. If the aim of the protest is to get the Glazers out, it's not going to happen in the next six games this season. It's probably going to happen next season. It's just about making life uncomfortable for them. And, you know, disruptive protests, absolutely right, that 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 is the way forward. But that's unsustainable every week. You know, United fans can't get every game called off. Um, so it is just a case of continuing to do what they can, being inventive with protests and just making life uncomfortable for the Glazers. Inventive protests get media attention, you know, Singing songs outside the stadium will get on a you know apart from us and on a national media scale it will get boring within a few weeks. So you've got to find new ways to protest and new ways to keep the issue at the at the top of the agenda. But 
I think the, you know, the biggest issue is, is keeping that momentum going and getting enough people on board because the sense I get from much going United fans, certainly at Old Trafford, and you know, you're know, you talking 72,000 home fans there every game, 73,000 home fans there every game, there's going to be a divergence of views, but you don't get the sense that there's enough of them that are incensed enough with the Glazers to really you know, protest and miss the first 17 minutes of a game. And when we saw on Saturday, there isn't you know, that desire to do that. So it's a case of building that momentum and, and getting enough people on board and, and getting getting a unity because we've been here before with protests. And I think they die a death. You know, the, this, the 1958 group are pretty new, but I think they generally have always died a death because the momentum doesn't keep going and, and not enough people get on board with them. So that's probably the, the challenge for them and, and what needs to happen going forward. Samuel, how do the protesters keep the momentum going? And how how do you kind of see maybe the next 18 months to two years playing out in this regard? Do you see anything changing? To me, I think one potential flashpoint could be the redevelopment of Old Trafford and the potential kind of um, whatever solutions this new kind of consortium or um, group they've assembled gets. I think, I think anything that could maybe suggest knocking down Old Trafford or anything along those lines could be maybe a flashpoint that would that could maybe turn a lot of United fans into a bit more kind of militant protesters against something of that regard. But again, that that would be quite... It's hard to see them eventually saying Old Trafford gets knocked down, at least completely. Uh, yeah, I, to, to be honest, I don't really... I think I've said all I've had to say on it, really. It's... Yeah, I don't think there's... As, as Ty alluded to, I don't think there's the unity in the fan base for it to... Um, for it to properly take off, that the Super League was was such an affront to United supporters that it was easy for everyone to to get behind it. You couldn't be of the opinion that it was a, a good idea um, if if you were a genuine proper football supporter. Whereas with this one, this is yeah, there are some people who just haven't got haven't got the time for it or are too old for it or just aren't, aren't that invested in it and. Um, you know, someone said that the, the 1958 group, I think if anyone you know, raises anything, raises an exception to something that they're doing or doesn't agree with something that they're doing, apparently they, they just block people on Twitter, which is not a great start. It's not the most democratic way to go about um, prolonging a, a protest. And sometimes, you know, these things just fizzle out when when a new signing is made. Uh, I mean, I think United supporters got a bit got a bit um, annoyed when it was Ronaldo's debut. I think it was Rob Harris from the AP who tweeted that it had gone, it pretty much gone all quiet on the anti-Glazer chanting, which for the majority of the game it had done. And then I think a section of the crowd just tweaked, oh, we need to, you know, we can't be hypocrites here. And there was some anti-Glazer chanting that went on uh, at the towards the end of that game with when when the game was won and sewn up. But supporters are fickle. You you don't have to look far to see, you know, the fans demanding, oh, if you sign this player, then we'll be fine with it. And those those people aren't just online fans. That that does seep its way through to to the match going contingent as well. Um, who for whatever reason it's, it's difficult to shake them out of apathy but you you have to invest a hell of a lot of time in it and you have to actually believe in the, you believe the fact that you not the fact but believe that you can affect change and to be honest i don't think that this is going to affect any change and old trafford for the first game of next season will have at least seventy thousand fans in it um 
as, as I said, I think you just have to boycott, but they're not going to boycott. Um, this, this protest, in fairness, this protest was flawed from the start because the intention was not to miss the whole game. It was to go in after 17 minutes. So you've, you've lost the fight already because you're still, you're still parting with your money that is going to the Glazer family. Um, but you know you have to balance these things up. It's 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 commendable that some are protesting, and, and some of those protesters on Saturday, um, they they don't pay for replica shirts. They don't pay a single a single penny to the Glazers. But during the protest, there are a lot of people wearing replica shirts with a green and gold scarf over them, which is it's, it's, it's double standards. And and that was going on when the green and gold protest took off in. Um, took off in 2010 that the scarf just became a fashion accessory uh, it didn't matter it was lost on a hell of a lot of people that underneath it they were wearing regalia that was going straight to uh, the coffers of the man united owners so you know as i said it'll be interesting to see if they can if they do sustain it if they do want um, a part two against chelsea but the season ends next month and i just suspect we'll be having another summer of, of disenchantment 100% and I'm sure we can't all wait to be on board of that train um, especially when all the signings come in and we can forget all um, you know, as with the fans we can forget about the, the the unrest for a while but Tyrone the more the other big story from the match was again circled around fans but this time it was reactions to one of their own players and Paul Pogba when he was kind of substituted late on in the second half um, his number was kind of sarcastically cheered and then booed um, the sarcastic cheers kind of reminiscent of what happened to Harry Maguire a few weeks back. And then uh, as he kind of took his seat on the bench, you could hear quite a, an X-rated chant aimed in his direction. And then again, after the match, as he was making his way down the tunnel, the fans um, kind of sitting around the tunnel, um, jeered him lightly. Pogba reacted to it by seemingly kind of cupping his ear, which kind of just increased the volume further. But this is kind of a, a, a nasty end to what will almost certainly be Pogba's kind of last few weeks at the club. Yeah, I think you know. I think Pogba's the obvious victim because of the fact he's gone on a free again and hasn't lived up to expectations of a general feeling from the supporters to pretty much every player in that squad. I mean, you only need to be able to be a Goodison last week to see what the away dayers think of those players, and the away dayers are a good a gauge of the mood as as, en- as any, and they had it in for them last week at Goodison. So it's it's no surprise. Um, you know, Samuel's piece earlier was was good and accurate that it's not what Pogba did for 70 minutes on Saturday that's particularly got their their ire. It's what's gone on for the last five years and more personally, the last three since 2019 when he first said he wanted a new challenge. And there's, since then, there's been spells of really good form, but, you know, he's, he's going to leave after five years and, you know, United certainly aren't blameless in this. I don't think they've ever given him a platform or a team to get the best out of him. And I'm not, I don't think he's that player that, you sign to build a team around particularly, which is damning away for a 90 million pound player, but he's, he's like the final flourish in a coherent team, which is what you see with France. Um, he was never going to be the man to lift United's standards. If anything, Fernandez did that. There was never going to be Pogba, I don't think, but he's going to leave. And I don't think any of us know what his best position is, know where he really wanted to play at United. And, you know, too, too many things have happened. Not not directly from him, a lot of it, but he could have nipped it in the bud. I mean, Raiola has run rings around United for the last three years, and it's embarrassing. You know, you just things like that would not have happened under Ferguson, and it just comes back to this. You know, Stafford Old Trafford love to roll out. Oh, we're the biggest club in the world. 
Not not at the moment, and not with stuff like that. You, a club the size of United letting an agent run rings around them for three years, throwing any kind of muck he wants at the club, any comments he wants, and they just stand back and let it happen. Nothing nothing has happened to Pogba. You know, he's never been disciplined. He's never been dropped. He's never been punished for it. He's still getting in the team every week when other players that are leaving at the end of the season aren't. And, you know, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Pogba and Raiola have run rings around United and made a mockery of them for three years. And there's not enough people in power at United that are willing to put a stop to it or stand up to him. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's all that coming to the surface now. And, you know, he's played... I mean, I, I was at Wembley covering the game on Saturday, so I've only seen sort of extended highlights. It's hard to gauge his performance, but he's been pretty poor before that, I think, since since the last international break. He looks like a player who doesn't really want to risk injury ahead of a summer move. And it's, you know, it's no surprise that when when the mood is so sour towards pretty much all of the playing squad, maybe with two or three exceptions, that Pogba is going to be the one that gets it in the ear, given he's going he's gonna to leave for free, having done nowhere near enough to, to justify the outlay over five years, over six years even. Sorry, why didn't United just sell him back when he first said he wanted to go? Like, surely that would have saved everyone all this kind of heartache and frustration and actually got them some money, some clawed some money back for a player, as Ty said, they spent so much on. There are three reasons for that. The first one is that they didn't receive an acceptable offer. Now, if you are open to selling a player, you would get an acceptable offer, but United didn't really give any flicker or any hint to any potential buyer that they would be open to selling Pogba. The second reason is Ed Woodward, because he was starstruck by star players. And he certainly didn't want to lose a player who was effectively midway through a six-year contract. And because of the way the market was at the time still, I think United were talking about valuing him at £180 million, which seems preposterous now. But at the time, you could kind of see where they were coming from. It was still, it was only two years earlier that Mbappe and and Neymar left. And, And because of Popper's age, the length of his contracts, the marketability, the talent, uh, the fact that it was Zinedine Zidane who was driving Real Madrid's interest, when you factored all that into it at the time, he, he was easily worth um, worthy of a nine-figure nine valuation. And the third reason was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, because he was just too soft. And at the time, in fairness, I thought Solskjaer's handling of Pogba and the man management was, was tactful. It was, it, it was the polar opposite from Mourinho. And that was Solskjaer's undoing in the ending, that in being the polar opposite to Mourinho, it became too easy and it became too comfortable for the players. He needed to go a little bit more in Mourinho's direction, but not as far. But he didn't. He just didn't have it in him. I remember on that summer tour in 2019, the first press conference, obviously Popper's recently said he wants a new challenge somewhere else. I mean, it's a smoking gun, really. It's, it's he's, he's just stopped short of submitting a transfer request. And Solskjaer said that uh, Paul's got a heart of gold. And he said that it's, he pretty much said it was a media agenda. He's, he, he had that clumsy way about him, Solskjaer, and he did it here. He starts saying, I'm not saying it's a media agenda, but, and then he, his voice trailed off, but he effectively said it was a media agenda. When we didn't put the, we didn't put the words in Popper's mouth, he came out with this, I think in, in China on a, um, 
doing some some promo stuff for, for Adidas. He could have, he could hardly have been further away, and yet the quote still you know went around the world because it was it was extremely newsworthy. And this was United's probably United's most talented player looking to leave, and United just did not really entertain the prospect of him being sold. And then a couple of months down the line, it was you know, we. we some of us had the privilege of actually you know, speaking to people high up at United about about Popper's situation, and they were very relaxed about it. And you know, they kind of said, "Oh, you know, he's, he's got three years left in his contract. He's very popular." Um, they even tried to say, "Like, oh, you know, I think it was Edward would like to meet Raiola, How he got on with him?" It, they they tried to play cool there. And again, it just backfired because all it succeeded in doing was that eventually down the line, Raiola would come out with things that were going to undermine United. And then I think it was just before Christmas of that year, Raiola gave a big interview to the Telegraph where he said, he was quoted as saying it, he said, I'm sorry that I didn't get Paul a move in the summer, effectively. He said the word, I was sorry for that. And I remember when I, you know, kind of like tweeted about it, I got a text off someone from United saying, oh, yes, but he's also said this about Paul, which was like, He's he he will be there for the rest of the season or, or something just pretty meaningless. And I'm thinking, are, are people at United like even trying to extract positives from a Mina Raiola interview where he said he's sorry that he's not engineered Paul Pogba a transfer? Yes, they are. And of course, a year after that, you've got Raiola coming out saying it's it's over for Paul at United. Uh, I think it was to Tuto Sport he gave that interview. And even though there are all these off on the record comments from Raiola you still had these cranks online who will apologise for Pogba as if, you know, Raiola is, is not acting on behalf of his master's voice. But of course he is. When what Raiola said, with what Raiola has said about Pogba and his situation at United, Pogba might as well be saying himself because Raiola is his spokesman. And Pogba has not once come out and said, I apologise for what my agent said. It doesn't reflect my views. He's never denounced anything Raiola said. He actually stuck up for him. Was it last season over the Build story where Build undermined Raiola? They came out with something about how he was under pressure from Pogba and what have you. And Pogba actually stuck up for him over that when Raiola went for the journalist on Instagram. So this is just a manifestation of a player who was knowingly offered to Manchester City I think 18 months into his time back at United in January 2018. He reveled in Jose Mourinho's sacking later that year. The following year, he said that he wanted a challenge somewhere else. If the year ends in the odd number, it's a guarantee that Pogba's going to be jet-setting, jet going somewhere warm when he's had an injury in November or December time. That's happened. Literally, it has happened. He's gone to Dubai, he's gone to Miami in 2017, 2019, 2021. And when people try and you know come up with dissertations about why is Pogba so good for France and not United, you don't you probably need about not even 15 words. He is fully invested and wants to play for France. He is not invested and does not want to play for Manchester United. He has not wanted to play for Manchester United for probably four years, but he's been marooned there because of the way everything's gone. And the COVID-19 pandemic has kept him there longer because there were no takers last summer and there were no takers the year before just because of the financial hit that clubs had suffered. Real Madrid have, have become a no-go because Zidane isn't there anymore and Zidane was pretty much the only one driving their interest in him. 
So it makes sense for you know, I mean, the two clubs who are probably favourites to sign him, like Juventus and Paris Saint-Germain, two clubs who've got reputations for, for signing players when their contracts are up. Uh, I mean, Pogba being one of the first uh, one of the first standout examples at Juventus ten years ago. Um, so it's, I mean, on Saturday he was not the worst player. Um, he was not the worst United player by a long stretch. Fernandez was diabolical, and Fernandez is getting away scot free at the moment. He's been even worse since he got an unnecessary uh, salary hike. Tellez is a disgrace to the point that I'd rather start Aaron Wan-Bissaka at Anfield and have Dallow at left-back rather than play Tellez. He, he should never have been signed by United. And so Pogba wasn't even the worst player, but United fans are not going to chant F off Tellez. He's small fried. They're not going to chant that to Fernandez because by and large, he has been a pretty good signing for the club and he's certainly been a far more effective signing than Pogba. Whereas with Pogba, I mean, as I, as I outlined in the piece, when you look back at that shot, the um, I forget the Norwich player's name, but De Gea made a good save when he tipped it around the post at two-two. Yes, thank you. When you look at Pogba's starting position, when that ball is played into United's half, and where he ends up, he's he's barely ambled back towards goal, and in that case, the camera doesn't lie. And I don't, you know, it was still a shock when. He, he got cheered off and booed and was pretty much abused as well by a sizable section of the crowd. But the only surprise is that it's taken them this long to to turn on him as, as forcefully as they did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he certainly wasn't the only player to kind of come in for criticism because um, was it uh, you're not fit to wear the shirt, which I believe you tweeted saying a fan yeah, of that was years. Yeah, that was after Fernandez uh, typically gave the ball away and then he gave a foul away and that that's what sparked that and you know, you've, you've got United fans who've been going to the games since Matt Busby's day and they've never, ever heard that chant aired by United supporters at United players. It's It really should be a watershed moment. Mm-hmm. Well, the good news is for United is that they only have Liverpool tomorrow on Tuesday. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, Ty, I mean, if I was a United fan, I don't know if I could watch this, um, <laughs> at least not through my eyes, not covered, like or hiding behind a cushion or something, because... This really, you know, to see the way that United kind of defended against Norwich, and I say they did get the win, and as we'll kind of touch on a little bit there, the top four hopes are alive now. The three points off Tottenham um, after Tottenham and Arsenal both lost um, to uh, Brighton and Southampton respectively. Um, the uh, the you know, United play Arsenal soon, and um, they're up to fifth place. The, the the season after seemingly being over for them is back alive now. They could re- feasibly get top four, but. You're looking at this Liverpool game now and then the fixtures, I think Chelsea and Arsenal next up as well. It could quite easily be um, dead again pretty soon. And yeah, I, it's hard to envisage anything else other than a, pretty much another Liverpool evisceration of them coming up. After, you know, they beat City on Saturday and played brilliantly. And yeah, it's, it, it must be quite a scary thought, I'd thought, for United fans. Um, yeah, I would imagine it is. I mean, like you say, they they won against Norwich, but they didn't play particularly well, and they just they are giving up so many chances at the moment. And if they do that against Liverpool, they are going to get thrashed, aren't they? There's no there's no other way of looking at it. I mean, they've you know, Klopp was saying today, listening to Klopp's press conference, that the results at the weekend uh, obviously helped United, that they will be intense for 95 minutes at Anfield, but. I mean, will they? I'm not. We've not really seen United play intense for 95 minutes all season, really. Uh, whether there's anything on the line or not, it's just not in their, not in their nature. And it's been, you know, it's been quite revealing listening to Ranjik talk about 
you know, his praise for Klopp and Liverpool. And I mean, United are going to Anfield and the United manager has had a bigger influence on the Liverpool squad than he has, than he has on his own squad um, going here. You know, his, his fingerprints are all over that Liverpool squad, not only with the manager, but five, I think the six players that Ranjik has signed or coached there, five of them Klopp has signed for Liverpool. It's pretty clear the type of players that Ranjik and Klopp likes are the same. But Ranjik gave up trying to get this team to press within a few weeks. You know, they are, they they just don't do pressing. I mean, they, they scored the first goal at the weekend through pressing, but that was the teenager who's in the side. And it came about through Ben Gibson taking an eternity on the ball, really. He was, he was invited, inviting that pressure. But, you know, they just don't, they don't press. And you don't, no one can look at this United team. I mean, Klopp obviously wouldn't say this in his press conference. And he was talking about how you can see Ranjik's fingerprints on them. I mean, I don't think you can. I don't think anyone could look at this team. You know, if you ask one of Ranjik's former players from, you know, from his, his Schalke days or his Leipzig days or his Hoffenheim days, and watch them to watch United and say, can you see similarities? I don't think anyone can because they don't press. They're still, for me, one of the worst pressing teams in the league. You just don't see those those similarities. And fact is, Ranjik's had a bigger influence on Liverpool than he has on United. And he's been at United for four and a half months now. And it's clear... You know, the, it, it's clear that he knows, he, he's got this way of talking sometimes, Ronnie, that he makes it all sound so simple. And I think he came out with a line today about Liverpool's success that they got rid of they got rid of the bad play or they got rid of the players that didn't fit and got players in that did fit. And, you know, it sounds so simple, but it took time. Liverpool had to be patient with Klopp. He arrived in 2016 and there was, you know, they, they, they had to be very patient. It took a few transfer windows to get things right. And that's what United need under under Ten Hag. I mean, he he likes an aggressive out-of-possession team as well. But this United team are not aggressive out of position or even close to it. And I'm not sure they can sign enough players this summer to turn them into that. So there needs to be a, a, a degree of patience because, you know, United can can get there. I don't think Ten Hag is even close to a bigger guarantee of success as Klopp was for Liverpool in, in 2016. I think Klopp was already well established as the the next the big thing or a big thing in coaching people are talking about Ten Hag being the next big thing and you know I, I don't think he's got a CV comparable to Klopp's in 2016 but if it's going to work at United he's going to need time and it's going to have to be patient to to get things right in in terms of signings because you watch like I said I was at the semi now and you watch Liverpool play and you watch the the unity between the stands and the players and between the fans and the manager and even including Guardiola at City, I don't think there's any club in the Premier League that has a manager in their image and a team in their image as much as as Liverpool. And obviously, they're still chasing this quadruple. You know, United can end it tomorrow night. I'm not sure any of us really think that's that's achievable. And if they go there and get and get thrashed, while Liverpool are still hide from that, it's going to be a, a a very a very grim day. But it needs to be an eye opener. The fact that Ranić is. Ranić's praise of Klopp and Liverpool's recruitment is, by definition, a criticism of United. It has to be. And the recruitment the recruitment of those two clubs is why they've gone in different directions, because United's recruitment has been a farce. Liverpool's recruitment has been almost faultless. You talk about front five, that they've got options from now. I don't think any of them cost more than £45 million, which is incredible. So it shows what can be done in the transfer market when you've got a philosophy. But United haven't had that for a decade. Um, so that's you know that's what's got to change this summer. Yeah, absolutely. Quickly, Samuel, before we kind of head out, um, you know, United will be without McTominay and Fred again, um, which probably sees Matic come in and potentially Pogba still starting midfield. Also without Varane, 
Cavani and Shaw. How do you see the game going? Can you see anything other than a kind of convincing Liverpool victory? It is one of those fixtures, uh, very few fixtures in my lifetime, where you're wondering how many United are going to get beaten by. And I just cannot envisage a way that they that they get anything out of this game. And it, it, it the situation is compounded by those some of those absences. Uh, when Varane doesn't start, they seem to get when and they lose, they get absolute hidings. Uh, Watford, City, Liverpool, Leicester, their worst defeats this season have been when Varane hasn't played. Fred and McTominay are, are important um, in the there have been a number of big games over the years where they've they've really shown up and they've justified their existence. And when you consider that they've only got two recognisable um, recognised midfielders, central midfielders, and both of them are leaving. Matic has already said he's leaving. Uh, Pogba, I mean, he's he's pretty much been been leaving United for for the last last three years or so. Um, it's just not happened quickly enough for him. So it's not a great starting point for it. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if, if Rangnick tries something innovative and um, up left field to try and um, surprise or, or throw Liverpool. But you know, Liverpool are where they are and they're having a season, uh, the kind of season that they're having for all the reasons that we've all outlined and we all know that they are one of the best teams in the world and they have been for for probably four years and I, I, again it's you know if, if United prob- if United don't lose 4-0 or worse I think they'll have done reasonably well I think if they lose 3-0 they'll have got off quite quite lightly if, if they somehow get a point from the game uh, it, it will be a be a great point because it's, it's a struggle for me to remember United going to Anfield and the, the result being seemingly a foregone conclusion before got before a ball has even been kicked. Absolutely, and I'll tell you something. The only the only um, innovation I want to see is Phil Jones in midfield because you know, that's fair. There's no more other options. <laughs> could be worse. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Well, um, if that does happen, you can be absolutely positive that we'll have it covered on Manchester Evening News. And I, I'm counting my lucky stars that the Easter Bunny delivers that as a late present. But um, I can only imagine the match will nowhere near be as that um, exciting for United fans. But if it is, we'll have it all covered on Manchester Evening News, um, which you can get us on Twitter at Man United MEN and uh, our Facebook page at Manchester United. Manchester Evening News, Manchester United. Um, Thanks all very much for listening and I hope you all have a happy Easter and uh, we'll be back at some point later on in the week to dissect United v Liverpool, whatever that entails. Um, Thank you very much once again and we'll see you soon. See you